Hi, my name is Steve Yedlin. I was the cinematographer on Glass Onion, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Steve Yedlin, ASC, the director of photography of Glass Onion on Netflix. And if any of you guys listened to Steve's last appearance when he was on for Knives Out, you know that you are in for some hardcore cinematography geekery. And I am here for it. You are here for it. The conversation is so, so much fun. You guys are going to absolutely love it. So thank you for supporting the show and thank you for checking out this episode. Of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. Now we have a treat, right? Look at this. I have a gift from our listener, Fabricio Diaz. I have not opened this. I don't know what's inside. He told me he wanted me to film the opening of this package. And I figured what better way to do that than actually do it on the show. So let's see. Let's see what it is. Make sure you guys can see here. I don't know what's on, what's in this box. Now, most, most cinematography podcasts are opening up cameras, lenses, things like that. I'm opening up gifts. We'll see. Hold on. Is this coffee? Look at this. We got a nice, a handwritten note. Handwritten. That is hardcore. Cafe Isabel Coffee. Look at this. I'm very excited about this because I am a huge coffee drinker. So there is a handwritten note here, and it's quite long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing out to you guys, but I did just read it, and it's very sweet. It's very nice. He's just basically uh, giving his appreciation for the show and giving us coffee, us being Connor and I, our producer, and uh, thanking us both for the work that we do and for incorporating his questions into the show. And really, I want to thank you, uh, Fabrizio. I also got your proper pronunciation. So I apologize for saying it wrong all these years, but I uh, I want to thank you for being a member of this community here, the Go Creative Show community. And of course, all of you guys that support the show and ask your questions, whether you send us gifts or not, we really appreciate you as well. So enough of all this yammering on, let's dive into our conversation with Steve because it's a good one and you guys are going to love it. Steve Yedlin, ASC, the director of photography from Glass Onion. Steve Yedlin, welcome back to the Go Creative Show. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, Glass Onion is just such a great film. I finished watching it this morning and it was so much fun. My God, I loved it. <laughs> ah, well, thanks for having me back. I had, a, I had a blast last time. What's it like going back to this world, this Knives Out world? Oh man, it, it's it's just so much fun. But I mean, every movie with Ryan, it's it always just feels like coming home to family. He really just, you know... He really makes everybody feel great, and um, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. Every every movie with Ryan, even the from the small ones up to the the biggest ones, it always just feels like we're we're just making movies together, like we did when we were eighteen and nineteen years old. That collaboration between you guys is so cool, and and you hear you, you know you hear the story quite a bit every once in a while um, with cinematographers and directors having these really strong bonds, working together consistently. Um, but there really is something to that. I, I just feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm curious if you feel the same as I do, that you sort of develop this unspoken language. You can move faster. You can be more efficient because you just know each other so well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because we're not, 
you know, we're not struggling with the, with any sort of broad strokes or foundational stuff that that stuff's kind of automatic, you know, we're already there. So all the work can be, you know, finesse, you know, um, you know, I kind of liken it to, well, I also use this analogy when I talk about how prep works with Ryan, but even just in general, you know, it feels like, you know, it's like a, it really is like a 10th draft instead of a 10th first draft, you know, like we, like all, because, you know, the broad strokes are so um, sort of unspoken, we can get into the details right away. Did you have any concerns when you realized that the distribution was going to be going through Netflix and not necessarily like the traditional channels of, of putting this in the theaters like the first one was? I mean, I know the whole world has changed, but did you have any <laughs> reservations or concerns about that? Uh, I mean, not, not, not especially. And, and, you know, Ryan did, you know, we didn't really know for sure at the time, but Ryan did believe in it and it, you know, it did come true that, that there would be a theatrical release to the movie and, and there was. So, you know. It really is the best of both worlds, kind of this new way of doing things, because the, if you want to go and see it in a theater, you can. But if you want mm -hmm. the convenience of being at home and having it on a service like Netflix that everybody has, it's just, it works out so well. I feel like now that this is kind of becoming more and more the norm, it just feels right. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. I mean, don't you don't you just love having that convenience? I mean, and then you can still go to the theaters, of course. You have your avatars, <laughs> you have your big movies that you need to see in the movie theater. And if you want to have that experience with a movie like Glass Onion, you can, but you also have that convenience. It's just great. I love it. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds about it. Cause on the one hand, I think it's amazing that it's possible. It doesn't always happen, but it's possible to, you know, to have quality, you know, cinema quality at home in terms of, you know, to some extent the size, but the, the image quality, the color rendering, you know, all of this stuff and, and the sound, it, it's possible to have it at home, but two things. One is, just going to the theater there it's just the you know especially on you know such a fun movie like glass onion that the experience of seeing it with people and you know also just the experience of not getting distracted you know you're not looking at your phone or just or anything you know just watching the movie um but there is the other thing too that that that's a little uh disheartening about the 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 streaming uh, i mean it's great and you know like i have my system all set up but there's so many hurdles to navigate for the image not to look screwed up these days you know not you know you know we already had all the vibrant and motion smoothing and the TVs aren't actually calibrated they're they're actually amped up um out of the box you know when when they come out of the box when they they absolutely could be there's no technological reason why it couldn't be great right out, you know, uh, right off the shelf, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a marketing reason, which is they want there to be differences between TVs. And if they're all calibrated, there isn't going to be a difference between them uh, other than the physical differences. And, 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 you know, we already had those problems. We haven't even solved them, but now we're piling more on with all of this HDR stuff, which is, you know, really for the most part, as a format, as a signal format, as a, as opposed to a, a hardware technology, you know, all the HDR stuff is really just another place for for things to get screwed up, and and not much more than that. So, yeah. have you had any experience with Apple's calibration app that you can use for the Apple TV? Have you tried that? 
No, I have I haven't used it because I just calibrate my TV my like manually myself. So it it really does work well, and I kind of feel like it. Maybe there maybe the maybe other networks are doing this too. I don't know, but Apple TV that that box, not Apple TV the service, but the actual like right. device offers this um, calibration tool that I think works really well. I've used it across multiple TVs and it does bring a consistency to it. But then there's also the other thing too, like I can understand why people in your position, you know, people doing large films that are meant to be seen in the theater have concerns about the calibration issues with people's individual TVs. But I, when I think about it from an audio standpoint, it's like, you hear a song in a studio and it sounds amazing, and then you worry that people are gonna hear it on their headphones. But at the same time, people are hearing it on the same systems that they're used to hearing things. So it's like, it's, no, it's yeah. the platform that they feel comfortable with. And I feel like people enjoy it regardless because <laughs> they're just, they yeah, no, like I, they're used to yeah. their setup. No, I, I you know, I, I, I understand that. And, and but it, it's still just a little, you, you know, um, disheartening that the, that the you know in the case of like you know if you're comparing a, a um you know a studio um you know like you're talking about if, if you're talking talking about a studio recording on studio amps you know or stu studio monitoring equipment compared to somebody listening to it on their headphones you know of course you know you might be sad that it, you know these headphones aren't the same quality or you know whatever the home thing is one of the things that's frustrating to me about this is what the thing is actually capable of is not the problem. Mm. You know, like it's actually capable of a lot more. It's really all the stuff about settings and marketing and, and things have been made so confused, you know, and, and it's, and it's this marketing stuff at every step in the way that that's, that's, you know, um, interposing itself because, you know, you, you, you have not only, you know, the, the, just the one example that I've, gave earlier of the you know the tv manufacturers amp up the tvs both out of the box and on the showroom so that they look different then you have this one upsmanship where you know a tv that actually looks correct is going to look dull and dim because you know one cranks it and the other one cranks it more and the other one cranks it more and, and you know you, you don't realize that actually but but that's only one of the problems you know you have these other problems where you know um you know, like just for example, you know, you know, so-called HDR markets itself as being exactly what the filmmaker intended, except also they demand, you know, when, when I say they, it's, it is a little bit amorphous. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's a mandate, sometimes it's more self-imposed, but, you know, there, there's sort of a demand that the HDR version looks different. But if, but if you can get what you want, if you can get, if you can get exactly the author's intent out of SDR, then by definition, you have to distort it to make it look different on HDR. Yeah. And they, you know, and there's this kind of confusing people to think, you know, into thinking that a style, like a color grading style that shows off the monitor, uh, you know, what the monitor can do differently than another one. Uh, is the format, but it's not a format. It's a color grading style, and you don't have to do that style. Um, so anyway, there's all these. I don't know. There's just there, there's just so many layers of um, confusion and 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 you know marketing mumbo jumbo that 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 gets people confused about what they even are looking for. How how to how to even compare things and um, you, you yeah. Know, anyway, uh, yeah. no, I can appreciate that. It's you know there were decades of SD, and then. 
HD came around and ever since HD became the norm, it's been this constant like what's next. And it's, you know, obviously it went into 4K. There was a brief stint with 3D that didn't seem to go anywhere. But now we're starting to talk about um, HDR like you're talking about. And, and I'm actually, I don't know much about HDR and we don't talk about it much on the show not because we're avoiding it, it just doesn't come up. Yeah. But since we're talking about it now, like in the case of Glass Onion, are you, like, did you film it? Like, are you filming it in HDR per se, in preparation for HDR um, streaming? Or are you yeah. filming it in SD and then making alterations after the fact for it to yeah, work? That, that, yeah, I mean, that. I, I, um, that's a great, uh, the, way, the way you phrase that question is a great example of the misinformation because that's like how you're talking about is exactly how, sort of the marketing aspect and wants us to talk about it. But the reality is HDR is, is or so-called HDR versus SDR, which is a bizarre differentiation that I also even think is kind of a false one, but, but it's, um, it, it's, it's a format, you know, like if you, like, if you compare, like, instead of comparing SDR for a second, let's compare two different color spaces, you know, like, like, uh, uh, you know, like a Mac computer uses display P3 color space and, you know, and most uh, HD TVs or HD monitors are going to use a color space called uh, Rec 1886, which is uh, colloquially and incorrectly called 709, but whatever. These two color spaces for all every single color except for just a few of the most garish colors like in a neon sign or something like that they're capable of reproducing the exact same colors capable of so if you, when you convert between the two it should look exactly the same so the fact that one is people have been conditioned to misunderstand it and think that if you have a wider color gamut um color space that means everything's going to look different that's false. If everything looks different, somebody literally just made a mistake. It's like it's like saying, you know, if you convert from from uh, feet to meters, that everything's going to get bigger. You know, it's just a different. Mm -hmm. it, it's, That's it's a, a different analogy. You know, it's a different measuring stick. You know, the fact that the unit is bigger doesn't mean that the thing you're measuring is bigger. Both of these things can represent the colors equally. And and when we get into HDR as uh, HDR as a format, you know, and I'm differentiating these two because obviously having the the new higher end hardware is just a benefit. There's no downside of better monitors that can show blacks and get brighter and not milk out and and all of that. So so I'm I'm talking about it as a format as opposed to just as a as a hardware because you can get an HDR compliant monitor. Or, you know, an, a monitor that's good enough to be called HDR and put an SDR signal in it, and it's going to look fantastic. You can get the black blacks, you can get the brightest brights that the TV can make out of it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so 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 basically, to go <laughs> to, to 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 go back to the question, really, what we're doing is we're shooting the movie to look exactly how we want to make it look, and we're going to make it look that way in the different delivery formats. And we just treat HDR as another color space, the same way that Display P3 is a color space, Rec 1886 is a color space, and Rec 2100, which is the standard for HDR, is a color space. And um, you know, we we just make the move. You know, so so we don't let the we, we we sort of don't buy into that marketing that the fact that you're in a different color space means you have to make the movie look different. We just make it look exactly like what we want, and we do the. Um, technically correct mathematical transformations 
when delivering to the different color spaces so that it looks the same. It's a slightly simplified version of it, but that's that's basically. Well, I think it approach. makes sense. And and yeah, I mean, that that is true because I think you think about it as two different things, but it's really two different. I think the analogy of the color space was great. Well, it's not even an analogy, mm -hmm. but it's it, just using <laughs> that as a way to get your head around the concept, I think makes sense. And I don't think anyone's explained it like that on the show before. But let's talk about some of the gear choices that you made for Glass Onion and just to see, you know, maybe there were decisions made because you know that now, this time around, you're dealing with a lot more people on the back end seeing this mm. film in HDR space. Um, mm. What what was the camera package that you chose for Glass Onion and why? Uh, well, so we used a uh, Alexa Mini LF uh, and uh, Supreme Prime lenses and uh, Zeiss Cinema Zoom, uh, Cinema Zoom lenses for the zooms. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, uh, you know, to me, the, the camera body and all that is, is not, um, yeah. I mean, ba basically I've spent years building my, cause I have a very custom color pipeline, um, that I've spent years creating and I can adapt it to any cam. I mean, I need it to be a high end camera. You can't shoot with a crummy camera. Um, I can adapt it to any camera, but I've already spent all the time for Alexa. So, so, so there's not really any reason for me to, you know, switch cameras and, and so, cause it's just going to make a lot of work. It's not that it's not going to come out fine. It's just, that it would be a lot of unnecessary work. There's no reason to, to do it. Um, so, uh, so basically, you know, we, we're going to shoot with the, the Alexa family of cameras. Uh, that way I can use the prep on the movie, prepping the movie, not, not rebuilding my pipeline that's already built and doesn't take any time, <laughs> any of my prep time in the movie. Um, and then the, you know, we, you know, we were, we probably would have used regular Alexa minis instead of LFs, um, like we did on Knives Out, except Netflix, ha you know, has some rules about, um, uh, basically they, they have, they have their own sort of, uh, arbitrary definition of what cameras, um, qualified to be sources from which to make a 4k master that doesn't really it's basically arbitrary rules it doesn't really have to do with the actual image quality and which cameras are actually the best sources to make the master it's it's you know more probably legal than it is uh image science based um but because of that um the regular alexa mini doesn't qualify you know for the for those rules so um you know, we decided to use LF just to, you know, to make sure that we can be, um, on our highest, uh, streaming tier, you know? Well, it definitely seems like the innovation is, I mean, cameras are obviously getting better and better and better, but it feels like we've hit a relative threshold with camera image quality where it's, they're all kind of great. Like you can sort of go to any camera manufacturer and get a really fantastic image. And um, you're seeing trends in people using kind of old vintage lenses and making adjustments and tuning lenses and trying to change the look from the lens side of things versus mm -hmm. the camera side of things. Um, do you and did you in this film kind of make any alterations to your lens kit or special filtration techniques or anything to kind of give it the look that it has? Um, well, we did do some uh, lens filtration for some of the day exteriors when we we're trying to, um, you know, modulate uh, just just for contrast, though not for not to make the lens look crummy. Um, yeah, uh, and you know what you described is is very, um, you know, I I I know that's a 
trend these days and and just everybody has different working styles so you know some of my favorite cinematographers are doing exactly what you just described i i don't do that at all um I, you know i love using uh, you know to me a lens is something you see when you watch the movie you see through a lens you don't see a lens you know and, and if you're distracting people with you know I don't know if the style of your movie is coming from what's junky about your lens. To me, that's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you need to find some other style because that's not that, you know, just to me, that's just not the most interesting visual. Um, you, you know, that's not the most interesting thing. And to me, even look, there, there's, there's all kinds of things that can be absolutely beautiful about, you know, the lens is junky. So the edges are blurry or something like that. But the problem is, or one of the problems is, you know, it'd be incredibly expensive and, and kind of dumb to just carry a whole bunch of lens sets. We don't do that, you know, and, and th that thing that might be cool in one shot might be bad in another shot, you know, and, and another thing that these sort of vintage lens looks have is they have flares that go absolutely crazy. And the thing is we, we actually love flares. We do a lot of, you know, either intentionally flaring or not avoiding it. And the thing is, every, every lens in the world is, is is a real lens. It's not a mathematically ideal lens. So even the like technically correct lenses, you know, the supposedly technically correct lenses, they still have all kinds of funky flares and stuff. So when you go vintage, it, it's not having funky flares versus not having them. It's having them go absolutely bonkers versus not. And and you know, using lenses that, that don't go absolutely bonkers actually means we can go bigger with what's actually in the shot. So, you know, you know, we're trying to get our style in, in what's being photographed rather than out of the lens model. Um, so a lot of times we go, you know, really, uh, you know, really big with flares, um, uh, you know, both with Ryan and with other directors I work with too. And there, you know, and we have scenes where, a f literally a flare is actually lighting this, you know, something that's flaring in the shot upstage is actually lighting the scene. It's not like it looks like it's lighting the scene and something else really is. And, you know, if you use a lens, you know, if, if you were to use some of these vintage lenses, you might literally just end up with an obliterated shot. That's, that's no, that you can't even see anything mm. because, the, because, you know, in the, you know, in the past, it, you know, flares weren't embraced as much partially because of the quality of the lenses, you know, now that we embrace them. I, so in other words, I'd rather go big with what we're doing in the, what, what we're photographing than go and, and have the, the tools for photographing it, be able to capture it and do whatever I need it to do. You know, we can, one, you know, one of the, you know, we have good minimum focus with these lenses, you know, Ryan and Ryan and I both love to do things where, things change from, from far to close, you know, if, if it's just close, you can put a diopter on, but if, if it's changing, you know, you want lenses with good minimum focus, you know, I want a lens with a, with the, with a good maximum aperture so that if we, you know, get into a situation where, you know, there's something beautiful we want to capture in the moment, like a dusk, you know, we can do it and that the lens doesn't fall apart because, you know, again, all lenses get, if you shoot them wide open, they get a lot worse. So, you know, so sometimes people are, you know, comparing vintage lens versus new lens, the same lens wide open versus the same lens at a different stop is a big difference, mm. you know? And the thing is with vintage lenses, that's a bigger difference. 
So they may look really crummy wide open and look exactly like a new lens at a, at a, you know, at a, at a T4, um, you know, so I'd, I'd prefer to not have those two things tied together where when I want to go wide open, it gets junky and also the option not to get junky when, uh, you know, when we shoot close to wide open. So, you know, these lenses, they, they, they fall apart less at wide open and you can also get closer to wide open before they do start to fall apart. And, you know, you know, if you want to look at it that way, that's, that's where we're getting a look out of the lenses. That's what, you know, when we're able to shoot, you know, when we, you know, we have a bunch of, you know, we do things that's either dusk for dusk or dusk for night where we're shooting right in that tiny window of dusk and it lets us go deeper into it. You know, that dusk window is only depending on which look you want. And also depending on your weather and atmospherics and stuff that could be anywhere from, you know, seven or eight to 20 minutes um max i mean 20 minutes is probably the max and you know this this can get you compared to not shooting at these kind of stops this is getting you you know potentially doubling the time you know it's 20 instead of 10 or eight instead of four or you know what you know whatever it is so because you have the ability to go up go yeah to keep open to up keep, a little keep, bit yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 when you would be done before you know the lights get because what's how you know you're shooting it if you do especially if you're doing dusk as opposed to dawn because at dawn obviously you're you know you're closing down as you go not opening it up but you know we do dusk a lot more often on class anyway i actually did some, some dawn but we do dusk uh, a lot more often you know usually it's getting better and better and better the last one you do is the best one you know, and, and if you didn't have the stop, you have to stop earlier. Like while the light's still getting better is when you stop because it's, mm. you know, you have no exposure anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think anyone's, uh, you have an interesting take on these things. It's, <laughs> it, I, yeah, it's not the normal, it's not the normal approach. Yeah. Well, it's not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not the normal approach, but you're also thinking about things creatively, um, visually and practically too. Like you're thinking about your scheduling, you're thinking about, not to say other DPs aren't, but it seems like it's it's a major part of your like thought process when you're making decisions about what equipment to purchase is things like that. Like making sure you have as yeah. much of the uh, as much of the lens usable as possible so that you can work in these situations. I think that's kind of yeah. unique. I, I, I'm, I'm curious now, when <laughs> we had mentioned that the innovation's not necessarily in cameras right at this moment, but where we are seeing innovation, I think, and curious if you agree, is in lighting. I feel like oh, yeah. LED, that, that switch to LED lighting has opened up so many doors. And just the fact that people are like, we just had the um, the DP for um, uh, White Lotus a uh, couple mm. weeks ago. And he was talking about how they were filming in the hotel. And it was a real hotel, as everybody knows. But they tapped an iPad into the actual hotel's lighting. And they were they were manipulating and using the fixtures that were there. Like, they, they obviously did light in addition to it. But this idea of being able to kind of control all your lights, have LED panels, like, this has really changed the game. Um, curious what you think. I mean, you seem to yeah. embrace new technologies and and like the benefits of them. So what are you, your thoughts on kind of this new evolution of lighting? No, absolutely. We've, we've completely changed over. I mean, the, you know, the ability to, you know, ma match colors and, and, and know what you want, you know, so, you know, we can have, you know, whether it's that we have a special fire color that we just like to use 
whether it's we shot on location and we took a spectrometry reading of the color and now we're matching that color on stage or, you know, um, you know, even like right now I'm being lit by this window light and there, you know, this isn't, this isn't the color of an HMI or something. It's, you know, it's a, it's a gray day. That's already probably, uh, a, a green, a slightly greenish color. That's not on the, you know, not on the neutral scale. And then there's like, you know, uh, green lawn balancing and a red roof, you know, there's, there's this complex color. It's not just whatever color, uh, a certain light is plus a gel. So, you know, the fact that we can meter this window and then make the light, you know, for, if, if we want to fill light, that's looks like it's, um, continuing the window wrap, we don't want it to look like another artificial source. We can make it exactly the same color, mm. you know, and, you know, so, so obviously there, or if we don't want it to be the same color, if we want it to look like, like the window is cool and there's a desk lamp that's glowing warm, we can make it exactly the amount warm that we want specifically for that window light, as opposed to some, you know, generic window light color. Um, so, I mean, we use this for everything all the time and, you know, you know, matching whatever light, you know, if there's a, if there's a built-in light that we can't change matching that, we can match other lights to that and then change the camera white balance you know, make that neutral, you know? Um, so we use it for all kinds of things like that. And, um, I think the thing that we've been doing that I, I think is kind of unique, um, is, uh, and, and last time I was on, we talked about sort of the, the early prototype of some of this that we were using on knives out and now it's still kind of prototypey and, and we're working on it, but, but we advanced it a lot on glass onion, uh, which is, you know, I have my own sort of color calculator that I've developed where we can take lights that are, you know, basically we can make dumb lights into smart lights. So when we have, you know, when you have a movie light, like a, a, a sky panel or a vortex or um, a Steras or any of these brands, I mean, that's what I'm calling a smart light and that they have that, you know, they've calibrated the light to, to chromaticity coordinates to where I, again, I can measure the color of this window, put that color into the light and it's going to make that exact color. But if you have a dumb light, like just a, like a cheap led ribbon with one of the, you know, the cheap controllers for it. That's like what that, I've got back here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that's a, that's a dumb light. So you can, all you can do with that light or, you know, effectively all you can do is if it had, let's say it has, you know, they might have three, four, five, or sometimes more illuminance. It usually has RGB and either one white or two whites. Like it might have RGBW cool white and warm white. So it's got four, you know, five kinds of emitters. All you can do is turn the five up and down, but you don't know what color you're making, right? You can just, blend them. So, you know, basically I have a calculator that, or, you know, I created this calculator that, um, it, it tells you exactly what blend makes the color you want. And also the brightest, most spectrally smooth blend, because as soon as you have more than, as soon as you have more than three illuminants, instead of RGB, as soon as it's RGBW or RGBWW, there's more than one blend that'll make the same color. So this thing, you know, so we have this thing that gives you the exact right blend and also the brightest, smoothest spectral version of it. So we started using that on the original Knives Out. And now we've gone to, um, you know, now we've advanced it to where instead of sort of having to type it into the calculator and then putting that into your light control stuff, 
Um, we're starting to develop all our own light control stuff where it's it, the it's doing it in the background. So we don't have to act, we we don't have to actively do anything. It's doing it. So we just um tight you know we basically put the color that we want into the into the light control software and the light the dumb light is now behaving as though it's a smart light and we don't have to do anything manually that's awesome i love that and and one thing i'm noticing in uh, glass onion is that you're you're playing a lot more with color and a lot of that's in the set design obviously but you've okay. give you gave yourself some challenges i mean you have neon lights <laughs> you've got glass refracting everywhere you've got big giant shag red carpets like you have you have big, <laughs> colorful sources and, you know, areas where there would be some bounce. Plus, you also have a ton of daylight. I mean, mm -hmm. Knives Out, you're, all the interiors are, you know, there's not a lot of windows in those interiors. There are some, but you've got a lot of, like, the big heavy wood and everything. In this one, there's a lot of glass. There's a lot of air. There's a lot of exterior lights, and it's just bouncing all over the place. And I'd mm -hmm. love to kind of hear your sort of just overall philosophies on the way you approached interiors and exteriors for glass onion okay well um i think for for interior i mean specifically it's the onion that's got all the all the faceted glass because the the atrium that we were in for so long the the that oh the the glass is only on the side it's open air in the middle and the glass is only on the side mm -hmm. and and the and there's the glass in front of the mona lisa but um it, uh, you know the yeah the onion the glass onion what you know obviously it's fast it's faceted glass so it's not just you know glass can always be a reflection problem but when it's faceted that means you know it's faceted into a dome that means something is going to be reflecting thing you know, things you don't, you know things you don't want or whatever and um you know I, I, you know basically what we talked about um you know uh, the production designer Rick Heinrichs and I talked about uh, in prep, uh, really early in prep, it wasn't like a whole long figuring it out. We were kind of like, okay, this is the plan. This is the approach. Okay. Break and, and, and just did it. But it, you know, is, you know, we don't want this to, you know, the, we don't want it to look like a 1940s movie where, you know, there's, there's flagrantly mullions with no glass in them. You know, I mean, this, it's the, the movie's called glass onion. The, the, it's, it's a big, <laughs> you know, it's a big metaphor in the, in the, um, you know, in the, in the, in the plot and themes of the movie. And we wanted to feel the glass. We don't want it, you know, we don't want it to just be, okay, there's supposed to be glass there, but don't think about it. And, you know, really the only way that you see glass, the, the only difference between glass and, and an, and an empty mullion with no glass in it is either the glass is dirty, which we don't want, you know, so it's getting backlit and, and, and all that, or it, uh, reflections. And so we kind of went down the road of, you know, instead of avoiding reflections, like you usually would, let's embrace them. So it's, you know, um, let's make sure there's always constant, you know, all these constellations of light in there um, to be reflected, uh, obviously for the night stuff. Uh, it, we, there's reflections in the day too, but it's obviously it's, a, you know, it's a much bigger deal at night. Um, so, you know, so, so Rick and his team, they, you know, they made those chandeliers, the infinity cube, and then, and then we made, um, that, so there's that big art, art installation structure, the infinity, we call it the infinity cube in the, in the middle there. Um, uh, and so we made, um, a bunch of different, uh, like cutouts and things that would go on top of our lighting diffusers that were basically 2d versions of the, of the infinity cube. 
So we could light people and, and not only is it okay if what we're lighting them with is in the reflection, it's actually nice because you see the infinity cube again in the, in the reflection. So, um, yeah, so with the glass onion, it it was really about, um, embracing reflections and, and always seeing those kind of constellations of lights in the, in, in, in the faceted glass. And then, um, and then for the exteriors, for the day exteriors, it was, um, you know, we did have to shoot, uh, you know, we had, we had a, a, a tight schedule and we were there in Greece to shoot those exteriors. So we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, you know, we didn't have any option like, well, this is this one scene, we'll just shoot it right at the perfect moment when the sun is low, you know, so we had to shoot in a lot of high sun. And we were also there in the time of year when the sun is high. And uh you know so we you know obviously high sun can be a cinematographer's enemy but we decided to you know let's let's lean into this and figure out what's the way to make it where we can lean into this but but the way we're going to lean into it is to make it feel like this inviting sun-drenched look rather than this just really harsh you know um blasting sun Mm -hmm. and and that that was a that you know that was a combination of you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, we did sometimes use some uh, lens filtration that reduces contrast without um, making it blurry. Uh, only sometimes it was it was kind of a shot to shot thing. It wasn't like, like an overall thing. Um, we did that. We you know we did um, you know a lot of bounce light. Um, you know, we, we actively didn't use, you know, big lights pointed at people unless we thought there was, you know, you could really get away with it. And it's not going to look artificial because we again, wanted to lean into this sun drenched feel and didn't want to start veering into a, into a like artificially lit look. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, the, yeah, the bounce light, the filters, um, you know, we did a lot, do a lot of, um, uh, iris pulls as the camera's moving. Uh, and then, you know, also there's, you know, just the final color grade, you know, kind of, you know, taking, taking a strong hand, but not, but, but not, uh, or being confident, but not, um, but not overbearing with it to where, you know, we, we change things within, uh, within reason and really lean into like evening out colors, even when, you know, you know, obviously if one shot's overcast, it's going to be bluer, but it's like, you just make it the same warm color or whatever. We didn't have much of that, but that's just an example of the, of the, of the approach. Yeah. Well, one of the scenes that I'm guessing was particularly challenging mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. is when all the lights went out and now <laughs> you have nothing to work with, but what appears to be the lighthouse circling mm-hmm. light around your set. Can you talk to us about that scene and kind of how you well what the challenges were and then how you overcame them yeah well that i mean that that yeah figuring that out was so much fun and it was a, it was a really big interde- interdepartmental project in prep and and into shoot to to make the lighthouse rigs but yeah i mean um you know ryan and i both love that really theatrical look and i know that he wanted um you know, he wanted this to be really evocative, you know, like to where the audience is really plunged into this, where the dark is actually dark. And then you're getting blasted out with the lighthouse. 
and you know we wanted really sharp shadows you know we've got shots where you you know distinctly see you know shadows on the wall as people are are skulking and running around and um you know uh we you know the, and the other thing we wanted out of it is to really sense the 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 progress of that light sweep across the frame um because if it was if it was if we were going totally realistic you know not not only is the edge of the beam of a lighthouse a lot blurrier than that but it's you know it's very large geographically its sweep isn't you know it, you know it wouldn't you know within within the narrow view of a, the frame its sweep would probably feel more like a, a, a fade just a fade up and down mm. um so we wanted to go for this theatricality more than realism of really sensing its sweep across um yeah it so, was giving it was giving almost like a spotlight or even like a flashlight type of mm -hmm. a feel yeah absolutely and 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 so uh um so the solution ended up being um these drums that were engineered by the the our key grip that uh uh, it was a, it was a big drum that was also a shroud because you know another, another so sorry just to back up a couple reasons that you can't just pan a light across the set there's there's a bunch one is you're not going to get that hard edge one is that when it's pointed away it's going to be hitting things and bouncing back into the set so you need it to be shrouded whether you're whether a light's spinning or whether what's in front of the light is spinning it's going to have to be a shroud there needs to be a shroud anyway so part of the logic was let's just make the shroud also the thing that spins um and you know the other reason that you know we don't want just to be panning lights is is you know these um, there's incredible precise stuff that we needed out of these rigs like the timing the speed everything you know we wanted the we wanted the speed of that wipe on and the, you know that's the speed of that wipe across the frame to be able to adjust that and to adjust it separately from the time between the wipe on and the wipe off so there's not just speed there's kind of two aspects of speed the the, the wipe speed and then the time between wipe on and wipe off yeah and and then also you know we needed this to progress down the you know over large distances so sometimes there were there were two or even three of these lighthouse rigs that dovetail into one another to continue on and look like a single sweep which if you if you had people panning lights you know, they, the lighting department would need more takes than the actors. We don't want the lighting department to take any takes. We want the actors to to do their thing and the lighting to just work. Um, so we ended up with these drums, which were, um, you know, it's basically a cylinder with part of it open and we can adjust the, uh, we can adjust the size of the aperture and they were controlled by DMX motors. So we had really precise uh, control over the over the starting position and speed and then we could also use that to adjust when we had multiple rigs we could use that to adjust the offset both the, both the spatial offset and the time offset between the multiple rigs so that they would you know we would adjust it until the the multiple rigs all look like one sweep and then we know it's going to work every time now you got it set up now every time you push the button it's going to look like that um and that and that was also part of the same our custom software that's also driving the LEDs was, uh, you know, we wrote the the custom code to drive the the motors. You're right, because it's like you. There are so many instances where the audience would not believe it anymore if it if if 
in the edit too, it's like you have to think about the post because you can't have a cut of something that's going on on one side of the building and immediately follow it with something going on the other side of the building and have the continuation of the same light. Like you'll start getting disoriented. And I think that you guys did such a brilliant job of always making it feel like that was one consistently moving light that didn't change speed or size. It all just worked. And I was just amazed by how that all came together so well. I mean, just the planning. It's just so such a, for a single light source, what a challenge that must have been. <laughs> well, well, I'm really glad it did feel continuous like that because we also took a lot of liberties dramatically. It, it's actually... It usually, like, in, in fact, it usually goes clockwise, but there's a couple shots where it goes counterclockwise just because dramatically we needed it to go, <laughs> to go the other way. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the other thing that was really fun with that whole scene was, um, you know, and this is another example of that kind of all the prep being great to where we have all this stuff figured out, but not... Um, uh, you know, you know, you, you know, like, a, you know, a map that's as big as the area that it maps is useless, right? I mean, like a, a, an outline needs to be shorter than the thing that it's outlining. So, you know, there's certain things, you know, you figure out everything that you need to figure out. And then you have, then, you know, then when you actually do sort of the performance that is the shooting the movie, you know, you have all these sort of things you can do. So, one, you know, one was, of course, the lighthouses being this agile where we could do really complex stuff and then make it repeatable was one of those where one, once, you know, we did all the work and prep to make sure the lighthouses could do that. Then once we're actually shooting, we can do all kinds of, you know, fun, like, Hey, let's make that a little shorter, or a little longer, and then it's no problem to do it. And another example of that, where we where Ryan and I had talked generally about it, but we, the, you know, the seasoning to taste didn't happen until we were shooting was doing subjective things like after the light finishes sweeping, it's, it's, it's really dark. I mean, he wanted everything to be really like actually dark when it's dark, but you know, it's after the light finishes sweeping, it's dark, but do a very slow, subtle dim up as though it's your eyes adjusting. Mm. So, so I we, noticed you know, that I hundred percent noticed that when the, yeah. when the lights went off for the first time, you noticed that. Yeah. It, well, it, also it goes off and then it just kind of like, like I, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it in terms of my eyes are adjusting, but I totally get that. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 The first time also Blanc gets the flashlight out and that kind of changes the lighting yeah. also a little bit, but yeah. So, so we had all these sort of different tricks that we could do, but you know, it wasn't completely all decided and prep like, okay, on this shot, it's this one on that shot on it's that one. It would be more like, I would say to Ryan, Hey, is this one where, you know, I, I've got it going where, or I go, did you see that rehearsal? Like I, I just had it come up just a tiny bit after. Did you like that? Or, you know, um, you know, things like that where we could, where we could uh, basically it was all set up and prep enough that then it was easy to do that. And we could, we could do that just really on the, on the fly and make, and make, uh, you know, the season to taste changes like that. I want to talk about your approach to, well, lighting and probably filming as well. These large ensemble scenes. We actually have a question from, uh, uh, what is that? Kartik Palmer on Instagram. I apologize if I'm not saying your name correctly, but thank you for the question. And it's, how do you approach lighting really big scenes with an ensemble cast, um, like the murder scene in the in the main foyer area um, with the the choking scene? Um, I think that when I when I watch this film, and I think anybody that listens to this show is coming at it from a cinematographer, from a filmmaking point of view, I'm looking at it and I'm saying there are so many lead characters. 
how do you not like I, I feel like the natural instinct would be a bunch of sync coverage with singles, but then it's disorienting. You don't know what's going on. It also takes forever. Yeah. So and, it's well, and, interesting then, too. and then it's not interesting. <laughs> and then you think to yourself, okay, well then maybe a big oneer and really block it and have people and you guys didn't do that either. I feel like you you found like the perfect approach for filming ensemble casts of this size. And I'd love to just get your your strategies and thoughts about how you did that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, to a large extent, it's Ryan, but, it, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of an approach that he and I have talked about for a long time and, and you know, specifically, uh, um, and, and it kind of applies to to everything, not, but, but, you know, there's a specific implementation of it for this ensemble cast stuff. And it really is that, you know, just really getting interesting confident blocking and 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 then that sense of every shot tells the story you know and and you know specifically with the ensemble cast you want to be seeing people like it doesn't feel like this big fun ensemble cast um you know movie if if what you're doing is you keep cutting to shots that only have one person in them you know it's it's about arranging people in space and seeing all of them and and how they um, you know, and, and how they all relate to each other. And, and then, you, you know, so, so, so Ryan will get a great blocking and then, um, you know, specifically with some of these performance scenes, some of them, not all, but some of them, Ryan is super, super planned out in general. Some of those are a little more figured out as we're shooting than his other stuff where he knows exactly whatever he might not know the details of the shots, but he knows exactly the concept of every shot. Mm um sometimes the long dialogue scenes like this are a little more um figure you know letting the actors block it get a great really interesting blocking and then figuring it out as we go so it's so the or, or not not as we go but figuring it out after the blocking and then saying okay here's the here's the shots we're gonna do and um you know in, in that case it really is about you know, you know, how do you, how do you really get the sense of all these people in space where that is shots of people together and evolving shots and stacked shots with people in the foreground and people in the background. And, um, and then the other thing is, is stage line. You know, that's one of the biggest things. Cause you can also, when you have a lot of people, you can get into this quagmire where, you know, you've got a script supervisor, so not our script supervisor, but I've seen this before, you know, you got a script supervisor saying, you know, you have to shoot every person from every other person's eyeline. You're like, what are you talking about? We don't have seven weeks to shoot this, you know, one page scene, <laughs> you know, so, so, so understanding eyeline, but not getting trapped in sort of the, the simplistic film school version of it. And, you know, really, uh, using it, you know, using eyeline instead of being, um, you know, instead of being manipulated by eyeline to say, Hey, we can actually, you know, make this stronger. Like if you think of what is the strongest connection in this scene, you know, like in, you know, in the, in the, the scene that we call the disruptor scene, which is the, um, you know, the, the, the scene when miles explains disruption to, to Blanc and then, and then, um, Janelle comes in and, and, and gives her, her speech about uh, about the about what's really going on, yeah. but um, you know, in that scene, you know, first you have a strong, you, you know, you have one clear strong eyeline between Miles and Blanc, and then it's between, and then it's between Miles and Andy, and if you hinge everything on that, 
a, you know, a, you don't, you know, you don't need as many shots and B the, the scene has that strength because you know, everything is hinged on this mm. and um, you know, and it's okay if individual shots break their own eye line, even as long as they don't break the big eye line, you know, like if somebody throws a look to someone else, it's okay if their their thrown look is the wrong is the wrong direction for the for that look itself, but it's but the camera's in the right place for the big stage line. That that makes sense. So you're focusing on what the primary point of the scene is and making sure that's all proper with the eye lines and everything else can be, for lack of a better term, kind of insert shots that are a little bit you know kind of you don't need I mean, to, I, you don't need to be as strict about it. Yeah, I mean, but I but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say it as though they're as though they're throwaway. It's more like they're made stronger by the fact that where the camera is for those shots is is right for the bit for the for for the big point of the scene. And then when they do, you know, like if you have one of the other characters that's not one of the people, one of the two people in that strongest eye line. You know, they're looking the correct direction for the big eye, for the big eye line for that I, big yes, confrontation. They're looking the right way, and then when they if they throw a glance, you know, it's okay. It, it's not only okay if that glance is technically the wrong eye line for that other person. In a way, it's almost good because it's saying that's still not the thing you need to be paying attention to right now. That all know? right? Now I'm understanding it. So you're approaching all this, all the shots from the perspective of the one main eyeline for the yeah. like the primary point of that scene yeah what's yeah what's the axis of the scene not yeah. what's the axis of this one person's glance this one time and and you know that that kind of and and i mean look you still sometimes need uh to get another shot at another eyeline if something if you're worried that something's genuinely confusing but if it's not genuinely confusing if it's just you know, you don't, you don't have to do it just because it's a rule, you know, just because there's this eyeline rule, you know, you can just say, you know, and, and, and yeah, so that just, that just allows it to be stronger and to concentrate on the stuff that makes the shots interesting instead of becoming a slave to this, this eyeline thing and having to put the camera, you know, you know, get, let's get every character from other, every other character's angle. You know, like, Plus it's uh, a whodunit, you know, it's a mystery movie. So people, are going to be paying closer attention than they would if it was just, you know, a, a rom-com or something. Like they're they're focusing, they need to know. It's crucially important who is in the room, what's going mm -hmm. on, what are they holding, what are they doing? Like and, and you have to kind of push some hints uh along the way. Like you you just kind of oh. have to do that. And um I know we we're technically out of time. Do you have like five more minutes to to answer one more uh, question? Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Cuz yeah. I I I didn't. I, I I wanted to make sure that we discussed camera motion uh, mm -hmm. for Glass Onion because I think you guys do such a great job. It's purposeful. Sometimes it's aggressive, but it's mm -hmm. it feels right in the scene all the time. And I think you use it not only just as a tool of good filmmaking, but you also use it as a way to really make sure people see something that they're going to need mm -hmm. to recall later in the film. So. I'd love to just hear from you as our last question for this conversation, your approach to camera motion in this film and why particularly, and, and maybe there are certain things you're doing because it's a mystery that you may not otherwise do in another film. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, as as Ryan says, every shot tells a story. So, I mean, it's it's really about getting this, you know, getting the story across and doing it in the most visually impactful way possible. So we're, so although we love camera movement and, and 
fun dolly shots and all that. It's never for its own sake. You know, the, 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 you know, the camera doesn't move when it shouldn't, it moves when it should. And when it's, you know, and stopping means something too. It's not just, it moves, it's that it moves and then it stops, you know, and, and getting those solid stops is itself, um, you know, a big thing too. You know, we, we try to avoid steady cam un unless we have to partially because of that, you know, it looks great when you're pushing in and then it stops and it starts swaying and it doesn't have that strength. We like the strong push in, but like like the strong stop also. Mm. So it's really about designing these things where it's just about the the moment and the and the you know and and sometimes it could be you know the that the that the overall idea of the dolly move you know the, the the big idea of it is is a is a big story point, but the sort of the nuances could even just have to do with the you know, the actors, you know, posture or how they're leaning or moving or something. And, and yeah. So when you kind of get into the, 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 the nuances of it, as opposed to the, as opposed to the overall, it really is that sort of like, you know, taste, you know, just your taste and feeling it in the moment. I mean, there's, there, there you know, there's like a lot of times where, you know, you know, like, you know, you might do a slow dolly move, you might do a fast dolly move, but even which version of slow changes it. You're like, if you do it like this, it feels like something's dawning on somebody where if you go a little bit faster, it just feels like you're reframing, even though they're both, you know, even though they're both slow and it's barely a, a, a difference. So, you know, and, and again, a lot of that can have to do with the, the, the pace of the scene, the posture of the actor, you know, all of this stuff. So there's, there's a lot of, so there isn't like a rule about it. You have to look at it and see, you know, see what it looks like. I mean, there's a lot of times where we've already dialed it in, like we've already adjusted the speed of the dolly from this to that, you know, and we've already dialed it in. And then I, like, I might say to Ryan, like, do you think we should just go just a hair slower? And he's like, yeah, I was going to say that to you, <laughs> you know, or, you know, and, and, and so, so it's like, on the one hand, we both sense that, but I don't know what the, you know, there's not like a rule book about it. You know, you have to, you know, sense it for, for, for the exact, again, the, the, the shot and scene and everything. I'm glad you brought up your appreciation for that clean stop on the move. I've read a couple mm -hmm. articles where you mentioned that and it just, it wasn't something that you necessarily think about right off the bat, but it is such an important thing to have a good stop to it. Work with a dolly grip that doesn't know what they're doing and you'll learn right away that you need a clean stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, how's that for a clean stop? I, we, I've taken enough of your time and I really appreciate it. Uh, the awesome. film is so good. It's on Netflix. You guys, of course, can check it out if you haven't already. Watch it twice so you can see it, enjoy it, and then go back in and see all the little details that, that there, you didn't there's pick a up lot the of first details. time. There's a lot of details you don't get the first time. Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. I can't wait to see it my second time. I saw Knives Out twice and it just, the whole, once you see it the second time, it really changes everything. Uh, you kind of realize how stupid you are that you didn't notice it the first time. <laughs> but the film is awesome. I really enjoy speaking with you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, I want to thank Steve Yedlin, ASC, the DP of Glass Onion. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Steve. We love talking to you. Of course, I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting this whole thing together. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. 
Of course, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the episode, but see the episode. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me and all my shenanigans with my production company and my band, Three Second Chances, it's all there at Ben Consoli on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you next time on the next episode. I don't like saying it that way. Too many nexts. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you on the next episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for the coffee.